Hey everyone, I'm Ryan Kalamea. And I'm Amy Gosha. Welcome to The Divorce at Altitude, a podcast on Colorado family law. Divorce is not easy. It really sucks. Trust me, I know. Besides being an experienced divorce attorney, I'm also a divorce client. Whether you are someone considering divorce or a fellow family law attorney, listen in for weekly tips and insight into topics related to divorce, co-parenting, and separation in Colorado. Welcome to the Divorce at Altitude podcast. I'm Ryan Kalamea, along here with my co-host, Amy Gosha. What's going on, Amy? Hey, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, We're going to talk about attacking and defending premarital agreements, something that I at least find, you know, really interesting. I think that history and the motivating factors and just kind of human nature are fascinating in these scenarios. Yeah. So I know that you've litigated these a lot, Ryan, where do you start your analysis when looking at whether or not to enforce or to invalidate a prenup? Well, the first step is to understand the motivations behind whether it be someone trying to defend the motivation and kind of wanting the premarital agreement to be upheld are pretty easy to understand. But then also on the flip side, figuring out why a party, whether it be my client or the other party, is looking to challenge it. And then beyond the motivation, you you look at the law because the law really does you know matter in these circumstances and the reason it matters is that a premarital agreement can spell out that California law or Illinois law applies and there's different regimes in Colorado even when the law changes. At the end of the day, though, they're really fact-specific. So you have to do a fair amount of due diligence investigating the facts surrounding the you know, execution of the premarital agreement. So it sounds like your analysis is pretty sophisticated. And you mentioned different regimes in Colorado. What are you talking about when you say different regimes and time periods? Yeah. So we talked on our previous episode about the law, what is necessary for a valid premarital agreement. And that's changed in Colorado. You know, as I kind of relate in the history, there used to be a time when premarital agreements, they were generally unenforceable. And so Colorado over time has changed a little bit about what's enforceable and and what's required in a premarital agreement. So kind of just take a step back. Up until 1986, the law around premarital agreements was driven by courts deciding what was or was not valid. We In the legal world, we call that case law and common law. And the seminal case in Colorado was Newman v. Newman, which was in 1982. And then the Colorado legislature passed the Colorado Marital Agreement Act in 1986. So it was on July 1, 1986. And what the law at that time did was it codified several common law agreements or requirements for an enforceable premarital agreement. And they're pretty similar to what you just kind of went over in relaying what the current law is. And it, it needs to be signed. It needs to be voluntary. But there have been some notable changes. And that was primarily recognized in changing the law in, in 2013, when the Colorado legislature enacted the Uniform Premarital and Marital Agreements Act. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about that act and what were some of the changes? You know, again, and that was in July 1, 2014. So in 2013, the legislature passed it and then it became effective in 2014. And it spelled out some of the best practices that were being used at the time by estate planning 
and domestic relations attorneys, and they were consistent with other states regarding premarital agreements. And so generally speaking, what we've seen is that Colorado will look at other states. There's other states, New York, Florida, California, that have had some pretty major advancements in the law surrounding premarital agreements. And that has largely been because there have been challenges. So for example, in California, Barry Bonds, the disgraced baseball player, he had a premarital agreement, I believe it was in Las Vegas. And, you know, he signed this premarital agreement and he had an attorney and his wife, I believe, uh, didn't. And then they, when he was with the San Francisco Giants, they got divorced and she challenged the premarital agreement. And so it went up to the California Supreme Court. And as a result of decision and analysis by that court, the law significantly changed in California. So you see the same thing here in Colorado where these challenges are met and I mean, in in the Colorado legislature's defense, they don't understand how someone can attack a premarital agreement. They're usually reliant on either divorce lawyers consulting with them and taking testimony, or in the case of the Uniform Colorado Act, you have kind of a uniform across the United States. A variety of, of attorneys will create some best practices in a proposed or a model law. So in the Uniform Act, the one that in 2014, you have requirements such as an attorney being involved, or if they're not involved, that there has to be some sort of notice to the person that essentially they're waiving, you know, away a lot of their rights. And there's also more definitive requirements on what assets and income need to be disclosed in the financial disclosures. Yeah. So let's talk first about one of those areas that gets attacked quite frequently, which is procedural fairness and voluntariness. What would you have to say about that area and why a prenup is attacked on those grounds? So that assuming that we're in, in Colorado, and, and if we go back in terms of the choice of, of law provision, if we are dealing with a Colorado divorce and the agreement, the premarital agreement says that California law applies, then what Colorado says is you have to apply California law. And so frequently what will happen is we'll need to hire, you know, some sort of expert. Usually it's another divorce lawyer in Chicago, Illinois, and there'll be an expert in premarital agreements or the, you know, law in Illinois. And so they'll come in as a witness. But I think that, you know, your question is, is about the two ways to attack, you know, big picture a premarital agreement, and that is substantive fairness and procedural fairness. So the substantive fairness is the agreement fair. Generally speaking, in Colorado, you can sign away all of your rights and a spouse could get essentially zero in property. And that could be completely unfair. Everyone understands that it's unfair. It was unfair at the time. It's unfair now. And the court will, in Colorado, will uphold that so long as there was procedural fairness. And procedural fairness is essentially that, you know, there was adequate time, there was, we'll kind of talk about more in detail about that. But in Colorado, they don't really look at how fair the agreement is with property. There are some other states in the US where they will actually look at was this agreement fair at the time or was this agreement fair at the time of the divorce? So the two main exceptions to that rule in Colorado are for spousal maintenance, which is otherwise known as alimony, and attorney's fees. So spousal maintenance, there is an exception. And under the Newman case, 
we determine whether or not a waiver of spousal maintenance is fair or, you know, a legal term of art is whether or not it, it's unconscionable at the time of the divorce. So what that means is when you are getting to get a divorce and you're not, you know, a party is looking at not getting any property, the question becomes whether or not they can provide for themselves on their own. So if someone was a high powered executive and you know, they can provide, they earn a lot of money. They might get zero in property from the other spouse, but they're able to kind of provide for their own. And I think it's kind of a an inside secret or or at least there's a, an agreement that the more unfair the agreement is, the more likely there's going to be, the court's going to look at making it up in maintenance. So someone that was looking at getting, you know, if, if there wasn't a premarital agreement, they might get, I don't know, a million dollars or $5 million and they might get $10,000 a month in maintenance. In that case, case, if they get zero in property, they might be looking more at like $20,000 in maintenance, just in some hypothetical example. I know that Dr. Dre and his wife, they're going through a you know high profile divorce in California and there was a premarital agreement involved. And you know she's asking for spousal support or maintenance. And according to the kind of news reports, I mean, it's like a million dollars per month. And you would never, ever get that if the property was divided equitably. So then for the second part, which is attorney's fees, most premarital agreements will have a provision that says that both parties in a divorce will have to pay for their own attorney's fees. And there's a seminal case or an important case here in Colorado in remarriage of Eichler in which the Colorado uh, court said, you know, listen, that's that's just not fair because, you know, the, the party, you know, both parties should be, have access to a lawyer to advise them on their rights. And it's just not fair for, you know, that waiver. Uh, it essentially just allows a party to get railroaded. And generally that is unenforceable. And you look at the cir- financial circumstances at the, the time of uh, the divorce. And one thing I'll know, I'll just note about Eichler because I worked on that case is that, you know, like the unconscionability of it, that the circumstances of that case were a mom with triplets. So, you know, like that shows you the, you know, the extent of the unfairness as to what it has to be. Yeah. And I think that it's not, it doesn't mean that that party's all of their attorney's fees are going to get paid for. Oftentimes we're looking at, you know, is someone just not able to get an attorney? One thing that hasn't been resolved by the Colorado court, at least as of the time of this recording or that I'm aware of, is a prevailing party attorney's fee provision in, you know, an agreement. I mean, oftentimes you'll see something that says that parties, whoever loses, has to pay the other party's fees. You know, if someone, if the agreement is unfair and is set aside, then you've got kind of some contractual issues of, I mean, essentially the whole agreement could come completely down and be kind of set aside, or you could be looking at individual provisions and the attorney, the prevailing party attorney's fee provision could be enforceable in that circumstance. You know, a lot of times you'll see that someone will get X amount in attorney's fees or, you know, they'll get X amount in temporary support. And the court in Colorado, or at least the law, it's not as really robust or well-defined as as some other places. So there's some certainly some issues of what exactly Colorado is going to do in those circumstances. So Ryan, can you talk to me about procedural fairness? 
Yeah. So I think the kind of easiest way to understand procedural fairness is essentially a premarital agreement. It's a contract. But in Colorado and, and everywhere else in the country, it's a special kind of contract. So there are various requirements that one needs to jump through in order to have a valid premarital agreement. In several Colorado cases addressing premarital agreement have noted the special confidential relationship involved in signing a premarital agreement. And that is that essentially people that are engaged, they have a unique relationship. It's different than if I walk into Best Buy and want to buy a TV, that is a normal commercial transaction. Whereas two people, you know, presumably in love, but they're engaged, they have a unique relationship. And so, you know, the Colorado uh, Supreme Court has stated that the people are in, they're in a fiduciary relationship with a premarital agreement and they quote, must act in good faith with a high degree of fairness and disclosure of all circumstances, which materially bear on the premarital agreement. But when you fast forward to a divorce, most people they are saying, you know, it's fairly common for them to say nasty things or say that, you know, the party is a liar and a, you know, thief and a fraudster. And then you kind of get this revisionist history at times. I mean, it could be that the reason for the divorce is because they just, they weren't meant for each other. It could also mean that one party is just inherently a liar, but the disclosure that goes into, you know, the formation of a premarital agreement is, is really is critical. And so when you, look at the Colorado cases on procedural fairness, they really line up with most of the other states in expecting the parties signing a premarital agreement to have this unique uh, relationship. So can you talk to me now about the timing of um, signing the prenup and why that's so important? Yeah. So if you look at there are cases, all reported cases all across the, the country, and one of the consistent themes throughout all these challenges to premarital agreements is the time given to a party before the signing of a prenup. And there's no Colorado case that, that's dealt with this. And or or specifically, you know, on the eve of a wedding, the current law. So if we were dealing with a challenge to the current law, um, an agreement signed under the Uniform Colorado Act, it requires that before the signing, um, an unrepresented party. So if they don't have a lawyer, they must have a reasonable time to decide whether to retain a lawyer and locate a lawyer and obtain a lawyer's advice. And that that takes time. So generally speaking, the closer it is to signing a premarital agreement from the wedding, the more likely it is to result in a challenge. So an example, it's always kind of easier to kind of understand this from different examples. And so again, the, you know, there's nothing in Colorado necessarily that addresses this, but you know, there's a case, Alexander v. Alexander, and it was in Georgia. They became engaged right around now. It was on Valentine's Day in 1997. And they set a court or a wedding date 10 days later. So it, I mean, they were hot to trot to get married. And so four days before the wedding, the husband presented his fiance with a, a premarital agreement and said he wasn't going to sign or he wasn't going to marry her without it. And so she signed the agreement. No attorney reviewed it for her. The husband told her that, you know, an attorney was unnecessary. And, you know, it said that there were financial disclosures and, but there was no proof that there actually were. And the Supreme Court in Georgia said it was not a valid agreement. You look at Texas, there was a case more v. more where they got engaged in April of 2008. And two months later, they were supposed to get married. And before getting engaged, the husband asked 
you know, or his fiance, how she felt about a prenup. And he represented to her at the time that he wanted a premarital agreement because he wanted to protect her, right? Like he had loans and liens and lawsuits. He also had a lot of money, but he wanted to protect her. So a month beforehand, he had his business attorney prepare an agreement and then he kind of handpicked the wife's, you know, agree or attorney and offered to pay for the fees. And then things kind of lagged. And then nine days before the, the wedding, the fiance, the, the woman, she finally met with her attorney and, you know, to review the draft. And there was no kind of reference to values or anything in the financial disclosures. And then everything kind of changed on the eve of their wedding. So like right before they were walking in, the husband presented her with a new agreement that her attorney had not even you know, read, had changed a bunch of stuff and, you know, basically said, you know, sign this or else it's called off. And so the time given, you can kind of, there's no bright line rule. There's certainly some enforceable agreements where they were signed the, you know, the day of or the day before and they were upheld. But every case that you see, this is always an issue is the time that they signed it. And, you know, it goes to your point when you referenced yesterday or in our last episode about having enough time, mistakes happen, you know, so financial uh, disclosures, they're not provided or, you know, there's, there's various things that terms in the agreement, they can be conflicting or it's not really clear. That happens when you have a short time frame in which you're looking at signing and negotiating a premarital agreement. This episode is brought to you by our law firm, Kalamea Gosha. Amy and I describe our law firm as an innovative and ambitious trial team that pushes the boundaries to discover new frontiers in family law, personal injuries, and criminal defense in Colorado. We currently have offices in Aspen, Glenwood Springs, Edwards, Denver, and Boulder. If you want to find out more, visit our website, kalamea.law. Now, back to the show. Yeah, so in our last last episode, Ryan, we talked about the importance of independent or independent counsel. Can you talk about that and how that plays into whether or not you would challenge a prenuptial agreement? Yeah, and that the Moore v. Moore case, the Texas case that I talked about, that was specifically referenced where, you know, the wife's attorney worked in the same office building as the husband's attorney. He just looked like a straw man where he was just picked by the husband's attorney as just rubber stamping everything. And so the court looked at that and said, you know what, this just doesn't, it doesn't smell right. And and I think that the takeaway from a lot of these cases is that you need kind of a plus factor. You need something that really just doesn't sit right. And so independent counsel, if there are two attorneys on the other side, it is really hard to set aside an agreement. And so one of the first questions I ask when I meet with a client and they said, I want to challenge the premarital agreement is, you know, were you represented by another attorney? And, you know, if they did, then most of the time their claim is could be potentially for malpractice. For most of the time, their claim could be for potentially malpractice. I've seen circumstances in which you know, the attorneys, they can't find the agreement. And that is certainly grounds for 
potentially a, a malpractice claim. There have been, you know, cases, Jamie, you and I have worked on where the attorneys didn't have the financial agreement attached. And so oftentimes what happens is you're looking at a malpractice claim, but having two attorneys on both sides, it really is is a challenge. We've certainly seen some cases where someone might have a friend who's an attorney or an attorney in another state. You know, so there's there's so many different circumstances and it's really fact uh, specific. One other thing I'll I'll kind of mention is you know, the, the defense of, I didn't read it and I didn't understand what I was reading, you know, that gets to, if you have an attorney, then that agreement or that kind of argument just really falls flat on its face. But most of the time, in fact, I would say nearly every single time, the statement of, I didn't read it, a judge is not going to be sympathetic to that argument. They're going to look at him and say, well, you should have. The other thing too is people will come in and I mean, because ultimately you need voluntary, you need a voluntary agreement, you know, under any law in Colorado and elsewhere, the agreement has to be voluntary. And so frequently what we hear is, well, I didn't have a choice. I was coerced. I, I was under duress. They said I was, we weren't going to get married. Well, you know, what the courts have kind of rationalized is you didn't have to get married and you could have, it would have been inconvenient. It would have been embarrassing, but no one forced you to walk down that aisle. And if they said, I'm not going to marry you, then that's not coercion. That's not duress. It just, the fact is you just didn't need to get married. So Ryan, what is the importance of being able to consult with independent counsel? Well, access to independent counsel is a recognized factor in analyzing whether a party voluntarily signed a premarital agreement. The kind of takeaway is that if both parties have attorneys, it is really hard to challenge a premarital agreement. You have to have some sort of plus factor. So, you know, reference that more v. more case in Texas, and that's a great example of having, you know, a plus factor. So the court in that case kind of went through all these devious things that the husband did. And part of that was that the independent counsel or so-called independent counsel, he of the wife, he, that attorney was in the same office building as the husband's attorney. And so that was noted as, you know, that was important enough for the Colorado or the Texas Court of Appeals to note it in the opinion. And it references this or suggests that, you know, the wife's attorney is a straw man. And you see this in other cases. There's a where v. where case in Georgia or West Virginia in which, you know, an attorney purportedly, you know, was representing both parties and was reprimanded and the, and the case was, was set aside. So the ability to have an independent counsel is critical. In Colorado, you know, the Court of Appeals has noted the importance of the independent counsel even before it was required or was kind of specifically referenced in the current law. So if you're dealing with, you know, something premarital agreement from before even 2014, you know, you can re reference a case. There's a case in remarriage of Ingalls and the court stated just kind of summarily that while it would have been prudent on husband's part to provide wife with independent counsel, his failure to do so does not render the anti-nuptial agreement void per se. So the court in, is just kind of referencing, hey, you know, you should, the best practice is to have independent counsel. Just because you don't doesn't mean that it just falls on its face. But the takeaway is that if there is independent counsel for both parties, it is very difficult to set it aside because it goes to the voluntariness of that 
agreement. And even under the current, the Uniform Colorado Act, if only one party is represented by a lawyer, the unrepresented party must either have the financial ability to retain a lawyer or the represented party must agree to pay the reasonable fees and expenses of independent legal counsel. And so, and there's this like boilerplate, you know, you're shining away your life type language in the current law. And, you know, I mean, Amy, there's a reason that our firm will not, you know, negotiate and draft or be involved in in a premarital agreement on the front end unless there's another lawyer on the other side, right? Agreed. Absolutely. Every single time. Yeah. So the bottom line is that if there are two attorneys, it is really a challenge, but it's possible. You just need to have a plus factor. Yeah. So if a client comes in who's about to get divorced, you know, the changes in circumstances have changed since I signed this prenup. You know, I I have children. We've been married a long time. So can a change in circumstance from the time that a party signs a prenup until when it's enforced, can that, can you attack the validity of, of that type of a prenup? Well, the, I think that the kind of takeaway is you can try, but whether it is going to be successful is going to vary. A change in circumstances. So if there are children, you know, a party gave up their career, you know, we hear that with a fair degree of certain or uh, frequency, but it generally is not going to be successful in setting aside a premarital agreement. And here's why. The court is going to look at and say, you knew that when you made these change in circumstances, whether it be having children or you know that you left your career, you did so knowing that you had a premarital agreement. And the result was, you know, you knew what the consequences were of that. And so it's one of those things that that again is is similar to I didn't read the agreement, is generally a change in circumstances is not going to be successful. There's other kind of arguments that we've seen are far more kind of effective, but a change in circumstances, and I didn't read it, they generally are not going to be successful. So let's talk about some of the kind of other circumstances or other arguments that are going to be more successful in challenging a premarital agreement. Yeah. So talk to me about violation of public policy and what that means. So the violation of public policy gets into the spousal maintenance and the Eichler case on attorney's fees that we already covered. What we haven't seen in Colorado, there's been other circumstances in other states of religion training, you know, for children or you need to cook me meal every single night type, you know, scenario, you know, something that encourages a divorce. So there's been some cases from across the country that provisions that encourage uh, divorce are generally disfavored. So those are the circumstances. But, you know, violation of public policy, they've been successful with spousal maintenance and attorney's fees. We haven't yet seen some of these other circumstances in which public policy is used, but there are certainly others. Um, And can you talk to me about if a client says, well, you know, I was defrauded by my soon-to-be ex-spouse or I was under duress when signing, are those valid, I guess, defenses? Well, they, you know, they, again, it gets really into fact, it's fact specific. So there's no bright line rule. I mean, it goes into 
the timing of the agreement. Certainly the fraud and duress, I think that fraud it gets more into the adequacy of the financial disclosures. So if there's some agreement that is left off or some asset rather that's left off, you know, in Colorado, there's a case in remarriage of Golden that stands for the proposition that you can make an agreement on some, but not all of, of the assets. So if something wasn't disclosed, if an asset wasn't disclosed or, you know, for example, income, you could then use that and, you know, say, well, there's fraud or a, a lack of disclosure. You know, in, in my experience, lack of disclosure is certainly the kind of easiest, not the easiest, but it's the most successful way to attack a premarital agreement. And in your opinion, why is that one of the most, I guess, highly used ways to attack a premarital agreement? Well, there's two, uh, I think, main points to lack of disclosure. One is that most of the time the boilerplate premarital agreement will say that it's, you know, financial disclosures are attached, but then they won't necessarily be attached and going back and forth in the draft uh, agreement. So, you know, we've certainly seen cases where it wasn't attached. So there's a, you know, a well-known case in Ramridge of Seawald that the Colorado court said, you know, it, there was no, it set aside the premarital agreement and it's because there was no confirmation or, you know, that we didn't know if the financial financial disclosure was was actually attached. The second reason is that you can always argue about value. You know, so for a business asset or for something and there's it's unclear as to whether or not that people can disagree. So Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin could be worth X amount today and then in an hour it could be twice as much. And so when you have fluctuations of value and the law in Colorado and how it's addressed, it's, you know, unclear. There's been some cases in which you know, they just were the court looks at the people and says, well, you guys live together. You must have known generally how much you owned. And so the kind of just the nature of the relationship was sufficient for basically kind of made up for a lack of disclosure. And, you know, but you can always disagree about how much something is is really worth. Yeah, that makes sense. So we've talked about, you know, all these areas of where you can attack a prenup. Is there any other area that you wanted to discuss before we wrap up for today. Well, I think there's a couple things. One is repudiation or revocation. There's also abandonment. They're two different concepts, but one thing we frequently see is claim of someone tearing up a premarital agreement. There's another attorney that was telling me a story about, you know, his client threw the premarital agreement in the fire over a dinner party in front of other attendees. You know, my understanding is that Dr. Dre, that that's a point in his challenge uh, premarital agreement is that he tore it up. You get into kind of capacity and whether or not, you know, if someone was drunk, for example, or they were in an argument, we frequently see people who during the marriage, you know, whether or not they were drunk or in the heat of passion, those can be certainly considerations on whether or not someone revoked properly an agreement. Generally speaking, under Colorado law expressly provides that revocation of an agreement has to be in writing. So then you get into, well, is tearing it up, is throwing it in a fire, is that in writing? But the kind of flip side is that if an agreement 
agreement is properly revoked, then the party, it's that party's burden to prove that it was not done voluntarily. So, you know, someone says, you know, I was drunk, then they have the burden of proof to kind of show that there's some reason that the court would find that that revocation wasn't uh, valid. Abandonment is something else that we've, you know, certainly encountered. And we see a lot where the premarital agreement will say that they have to have separate bank accounts, separate property, and then they commingle everything. There's, you know, in Colorado, there is actually a case, there's been a couple cases in which they have recognized abandonment. And so one was, you know, they, they had a joint business together and the court essentially said that because they kind of went into business together, that it effectively nullified their whole premarital agreement. In another case, there was, I believe it was two people from Holland or the Netherlands and their parents wanted them to get, you know, an agreement, a premarital agreement. They didn't really want one. And so then they just kind of did it for their parents just abandoned it or didn't really follow it and then ended up getting a divorce and the husband found it and brought it up and tried to use it. And the court said, you know, listen, you didn't follow any part of this agreement. So failed to enforce it. Yeah. Well, thanks, Ryan, for going through all of um, those nuances. And as you kind of started out, you said that each case is very fact specific So Ryan, you mentioned the burden of proof and revocation. In Colorado, who has the burden of proof? So the burden is on the challenger to prove that a premarital agreement was not voluntary or there was a lack of financial disclosures. You know, other states, I think California, there's some other states in which someone, when they are wanting to enforce a premarital agreement that the burden is on them. But in Colorado, it's presumed to be valid. And, you know, so the burden is on the party challenging it. So again, it really kind of depends on the facts and the circumstances, but the burden is on the party challenging the agreement. And you mentioned that cases can really turn on the facts and of a specific case. How do you actually discover, you know, those specific facts in a given case? Well, again, usually what happens is in these kinds of contests, it's interesting because there's usually an up or down result. So either the court says the agreement is valid or it says it's invalid. And so it's a threshold determination because it's going to drive the entire divorce proceeding in are you going to value assets? You know, what does that even does that even matter? And, you know, so what happens is usually you get into these threshold, you bifurcate the proceedings to figure out whether or not the agreement is or is not uh, valid. So the first step is, you know, you would then uh, obviously you'd interview your client get an idea of exactly what kind of looking at, but you then serve written discovery requests that are specifically targeted on the facts and the circumstances. And you'd ask for a copy, for example, of the original agreement from the other party. You know, when you get into depositions, you know, these cases can usually result in a a lot of depositions. You could depose the notary that was there for the agreement. You mentioned last episode about videotaping because, you know, frequently we, we will hear, well, I was crying or the other attorney was yelling at me or forcing me. And so you kind of get into the secretaries, the other attorneys, it can cause some conflict of interest issues. And, you know, the other thing that's notable is that oftentimes these cases can be challenged 10, 15, 20 years 
after the the fact. So when you're asking people what they remember, it is gets into that checklist scenario. If you, if an attorney knows that they do something every single time and they have a checklist to support that, that's certainly going to be important. You know, finally, when you get into the production of the file, if you are representing the party defending a premarital agreement, most of the time you're going to ask for the other attorney's uh, file and you're going to disclose the emails between the counsel showing the negotiation, showing the red lines on the prior agreements, whether or not there's text messages between the parties. You want to have all of that, the billing statements, the financial disclosures to show that this agreement was supported by a negotiation. And, you know, when you are defending a premarital agreement, you know, challenge those are the kind of things that you're really looking at at the very beginning. You're kind of talking with that other attorney. So, you know, certainly there's a lot more. I know that we've got Jim Bailey, you know, that we're going to talk to about kind of some tactics, but that hopefully gives some people a flavor of exactly what goes into a challenge or, or defending a premarital agreement. Yeah, you covered some really good topics today, Ryan. If an attorney or potential client has further specific questions for you, how can they reach you? They can, you know, give us a call at 970-315-2365 or shoot me an email, ryan at kalamea.law. Um, and that's K-A- L-A-M-A-Y-A. Great. Thank you. Hey, everyone. This is Ryan again. Thank you for joining us on Divorce at Altitude. If you found our tips, insight, or discussion helpful, please tell a friend about this podcast. For show notes, additional resources, or links mentioned on today's episode, visit divorceataltitude.com. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen in. Many of our episodes are also posted on YouTube. You can also find Amy and me at Kalamea.law or 970-315-2365. That's K-A-L-A-M-A-Y-A dot law.